Shabbat Shalom, everybody. You guys know my name, Noel Joshua Hadley. This is The Unexpected Cosmology. I have so much material to cover this week. I'm just going to get straight to it. And now we're all live here right now. And if you're live with me, you guys kind of know the drill. I'm going to put out a little warning here starting out. If you're listening to this at any time in the unforeseen future and you're like sitting at work or you know, your boss is nearby. I would make sure you're wearing some headphones right now as you're listening to this because we're kind of talking about, you know, a certain word that uh, <laughs> would, would definitely get me fired. Uh, so it might get you fired. So just, yeah. And at this point, I, I can amazingly still get this on YouTube. We're not at a point of history where it's going to give me strikes yet. Uh, maybe that will happen someday, but I, I think I can, I can get this on. So let's get right to it. This is called Der Golem and the Batman. And this is a, a kind of a strange hybrid paper. It started out me talking about one thing, and I was really interested in the idea that the comic book industry was started by the same people group the Jews. All right. And I'm going to, so it's going to be a little, it might be a little jarring for some of you because I'm just taking you through the, through this and showing you all these individuals that, you know, come from the same, the, the Ashkenaz. And then it, this goes into uh, a Der Golem and how that is of course a Jewish thing, but even more so it, this became kind of a millennial kingdom paper. And I, as I was looking at this evidence, I'm going, well, this is really interesting because as you guys know, my timeline is I believe uh, the, the year 500 to 1500 and the whereabouts is a really good contender for when I think the millennial kingdom of Yahushua HaMashiach physically happened on this earth. And that you see this big revolt against it. And so we're going to be visiting, starting out, we're going to be visiting the medieval the millennial kingdom city of Prague, home of the Prague clock, and how this plays out with the the end of the millennial kingdom. So let's get right into it. Der Golem and the Batman by yours truly, Noel Joshua Hadley. Batman's creator was born in New York City to Herman and Augusta Khan. Sounds rather suspicious, being born in New York City and all, but also the name. Wikipedia lists his parents as Eastern European Jewish descent. I knew it. Moving on, we then read that Robert Kahn, but you probably know him as Bob Kane. Interesting how he went from Kahn to Kane, right? Had a high school friend by the name of Will Eisner, who went on to become the future creator of Spirit. Surely, I thought, a Jew wouldn't be listed as buddies with the Goyim. Passing notes in class, are we? I checked. Eisner was a Jew. After graduating from DeWitt Clinton and All Boys High School in the Bronx, Kane studied at Cooper Union before joining the Max Flesher. I think that's Flesher. Is it Fleischer? Fleischer? Studio in 1934. Flesher, I'm already suspicious. I mean, it, it, looks, it looks like something that would raise my suspicion. This is the same uh, Fleischer, Fleischer, man, I'm sorry, I'm 
this is the same Flesher who is responsible for bringing such animated characters as Coco the Clown, Betty Boop, and Popeye to the silver screen. Well, he was born in Krakow, one of the oldest cities in Poland. Yep, I checked. He was a Jew. Kane entered the blossoming comic book industry two years later in 1936, freelancing original material to editor Jerry Iger's comic book, Wow, What a Magazine. Should I perform a background check? I'm feeling lucky if you are. Yep, I checked again. Iger was from Austria, Jew. I don't know about you, but I'm detecting a theme here. Probably all a coincidence. Honestly, I have Jewish friends of Ashkenazi origins and don't hold it against them. I mean, I'm, I have origins. Apparently, I'm Irish, Scottish, French, Swiss. They don't hold it against me. I'm simply showing you who runs the entertainment industry, dropping Wikilinks as I do so. And seeing as how we're not supposed to notice, the they, them people are making this all too easy. Shall we continue? In 1939, the wild success of Superman in action comics created by Jerome Siegel and Joseph Schuster, both Jews. I should have put that in red there. I don't know why I didn't. Prompted the Jewish community, scratch that, editors to find more such heroes who might fill the imaginative pages of the Copernican universe. That's... <laughs> <laughs> That's right about the time when Bill Finger joined Bob Kane's nascent studio. We are told the aspiring writer and part-time shoe salesperson had met Kane at a party. What sort of party was it? Finger was the love child of Austrian-Hungarian Jewish immigrants. Maybe it was a bar mitzvah, I don't know. Together, Kane and Finger created The Batman. We are told Kane's influences for the character included the swashbuckler Zorro, but only uh, Douglas Fairbanks' film portrayal—only uh, Douglas Fairbanks' film portrayal of the crime fighter. Wikipedia must be passing notes again in class, as Fairbanks was a—you can say it, class—a Jew. The next influence was Leonardo da Vinci's diagram of the uh, ornithopter. I should have put a picture of it here. It's kind of, it's pretty crazy. Probably a Jew, who really knows. Bill Finger claims yet another influence on Batman's creation, and that would be Lee Falk, creator of Mandrake the Magician and The Phantom. You can say it, class, Jew. One other influence was the 1930 silent film, The Bat Whispers. Its director, Roland West, the same guy who was caught up in the Thelma Todd murder investigation, uh, is apparently not a Jew. Its producer, producer, uh, its producer, however, I need more coffee. Hold on. I'm not ready yet. I, I kind of rushed into this and I need to kind of slow down. Its producer, however, a search in Joseph M. Schink or Schink immigrated to New York City as an infant. You would be correct if you guessed he's a Russian-born Jew. I wasn't kidding when I said you need you know listen to this with your earphones on. This this can get you in trouble. But it's the truth. I mean, I'm just, you know, pointing out that there's a certain people group who appears to be running or at least in this case starting the comic book industry. Batman debuted in Detective Comics number 27 in May of 1939, just 1 year after Superman and proved a breakout hit. 
Of course, you guys knew that already. Kane then hired Jerry Robinson as an inker. Jew. Batman's alter ego was supposedly named by Bill Finger. If Bruce Wayne was one, one of them, we are not told. There is, however, a point to this exercise, as Batman is clearly based upon a figure from Jewish folklore, and that is the Golem, or Der Golem. The origins of the Golem can notably be traced to the city of Prague in the whereabouts of 1580. There's the century I was telling you about in the location, but even long before that to the Talmud. A golem is perhaps best described as a body formed without a soul, a living being, though, created in the image of its maker, and often, if not always, made of mud. The idea is that a golem is imperfect. Therefore, despite being an animated being formed in your image, you may want to think doubly hard about getting too close or turning away from your own creation. They may wreak havoc, stick a knife in your back, steal your girl, that sort of thing. Actually, we can take its history a step further as the Gola makes an appearance in the Psalms. The context seems to infer the creation of Adam before he was placed in the garden. And it, here's what it reads. Your eyes did see my substance yet being unperfect, Golem, and in your sephir all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. Psalm 139.16. There it is, Golem. Here written as Galimi, that's 1564 in Strong's Concordance for all you scholars out there, and very close to the year 1580, 1564-1580. Yeah, I kind of found that interesting. It's close, but no cigar. It would have been awesome if it was the same year. It's spelled like this. You can see right there in Hebrew. It occurs only once in the entire Masoretic in Psalm 139.16. In post-Newtonian terms, the word is taken to mean embryo when a more literal re rendering should read unformed substance. The Gola makes its next appearance in the Bab uh, Babylonian Talmud. And during the Middle Ages, Kabbalah would be given an entire fashion line, and the golem was hired as a runaway, runway, not a runaway, a runway model to go ape kaka on the craze. But first, he appeared in the Talmud, Adam again. Adam was initially created as a golem when his dust was kneaded into a shapeless husk. Uh, therein we read uh, this here. This comes from the Sanhedrin 38a through b. It is taught in a uh, Baresha that Rabbi Meir would say, the dust that served to form Adam, the first man, was gathered from the entire world, as it is stated, when I was made in secret and wrought in the lowest places of the earth, your eyes did see my unshaped flesh. And that's where we'd get Golem from right there. And as you can see, it's it's actually a reference anyways on Psalm 139, which we already covered. And it is written, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, 2 Chronicles 16.9, indicated indicating that this figure was formed from the whole earth, the place within the view of uh, Elohim's, I'll just say Elohim's eyes. Rav Oshea says in the name of Rav, Rav, with regards to Adam, the first man, his torso was fashioned from dust taken from Babylonia and his head was fashioned from dust taken from Eretz Yezreel, the most important land, and his limbs were fashioned from dust taken from the rest of the lands in the world. With regard to his buttocks, 
Rav Aha says they were <laughs> his buttocks were formed in Babylonia. They were fashioned from the dust taken from Akra di Agma on the outskirts of Babylonia. Uh, good times. Though, as you can see, the Talmud simply ends up quoting from Psalm 139 to form its ideas, which we have already managed to do. Their depiction of Adam's golem-like formation, by which he is dust collected from Babylon and Yashorel, as well as various other strategic locations throughout the plain of the earth, creates a malleable metaphor with a seemingly limitless supply of story tropes and personifications. Will this Adam Golem character become an ambassador of his creator and a vessel for his will to be carried out in the heavens and the earth? Or will he rebel against his ordinances, causing chaos, chaos and destruction? See what I mean? Moving forward in his story, specifically during the time period which they tell us is the Dark Ages, I know, passages from the Sefer Yetzirah, or the Book of Creation, are said to have been studied as a literal means to create an anim and animate a golem. Rabbis would take the quote-unquote unknowable name of Elohim and put it in the golem's mouth with the hope of animating him. That will seem like a strange concept to the adepts of Western medicine, but then at least ask yourself why both Judaism and the generic superficial highways and byways of Christianity refuse to invoke the name of Elohim, settling upon unsavory substitutes such as the Lord instead. As you can see there in the, in the Talmud, where it just says the Lord. Christianity is following the example but uh, put forward by Judaism and claiming that the name of the creator cannot be repeated or else it is invoked with the risk of creating. Or you might say the invoking of his name can manipulate the naturally perceived construct around us. Don't worry, I won't leave you hanging. I have arrived with an example from the Aramaic Targum to, to what I'm talking about here. This comes from Numbers 31.8 in the, in the Aramaic Targum and it says, and it was when Balaam, uh, or Balaam, the guilty, saw Phinehas, the priest, pursuing him. He made use of his magical arts. Uh, he, I put in there quotes, he made words of enchantment and flew in the air of the heavens. But Phinehas forthwith pronounced the great and holy name and flew after him and seized him by his head and bringing him down, drew the sword and sought to kill him. But he opened his mouth with words of deprecation and said to Phinehas, if thou wilt spare my life, I swear to thee that all the days I live, I will not curse thy people. And that's Numbers 31.8 from the Targum. The wizard Balaam was apparently no novice because he was capable of flying in the air of the heavens as a means of escape. Well, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, was able to pursue him in flight. Not only that, but he was also capable of defeating Yashorel's adversary with the divine superiority which invoking the great and holy name entailed. Words may be created, but they also create, and I can prove it. Now, again, I know this is a review for some of you, but as you guys know that I have to try to cover all my bases in, in this research, even if it's you know information I shared over here and over here and over there, but it, it all connects, as you know. So you guys are familiar with this now where we have the, uh, the, 
different water crystals that are manifested due to words that we speak out of our mouth. And I would even say emotions and thoughts as well. Now, in recent years, the, the use of language is something capable of creating, creating or destroying life was demonstrated by Dr. Masaru Emoto, uh, a Japanese individual. But then even the quip about recent years would be misdirection left to itself. I have already shown you in at least two of my papers, Star Forts and uh, Cathedrals, which is the same one as it, Kings and Priests of the Thousand Year Reign, how the kings and priests of the Millennial Kingdom designed beautifully symmetrical architecture for the purpose of purifying and healing the nations, all of which took on the shape of sacred geometry. Sacred geometry. Ah, it's a sign I need more uh, water that has coffee beans in it, black water. I'm getting my fill on water, my daily intake. And so here you see another chart in front of you. Thank you, wisdom, truth, eternal, angel, I love you, peace. All beautiful words uh, that, that manifest beautiful things. And then below that, you see ugly words. And it's, you know, just the idea here that we are little creators. We are made in the image of the creator. And so we are little creators and we manifest the world around us. And that's crazy to think about. I'm going to say really quickly, I'm going to pause on this, that uh, I, I want to do a whole presentation on on more on this on prayer because we see in the in the truther community the Torah community that there a lot of them get really hung up on this idea that you're not supposed to pray before you eat and you're supposed to pray after you eat which I think is a little off putting just because Yahushua Hamashiach would break bread and give thanks for it before he ate he didn't get thanks for it afterwards he's showing us an example of what to do but if you can think about the food before you like this this chart right here and you're like you know do I, I, you can see down there the polluted water after prayer uh it's in the bottom right hand corner and it's beautiful crystal image versus the one to the left polluted water before prayer which one do you want to drink right so that tells you right there that before you drink water, before you sit down to a meal, before anything, pray over it and, you know, and, and thank the creator and say beautiful things to it and say beautiful things to your creator and to other people. And, you know, you are what you eat, but you are what you think too, right? All right, continuing. Even my, even my mention of Dr. Emoto is a, is a review, though it deserves repeating, because what the Japanese scientists essentially rediscovered is that the vibrations emanating from the words which proceed from our mouths have an effect on shaping molecular structures around us. Water particles verifiably change their shape and semblance according to the type of word or sound to which they have been exposed, uh, which, that should be a period there, to which they have been exposed, period. Words such as love, shalom, and thank you respond with beautiful, beautiful crystalline diagrams and shapes, whereas you fool and I hate you take on grotesque, distorted patterns. I probably shouldn't even read that out loud because I'm changing things around me. He used magnetic resonance analysis technology and high-speed photographs to do this. In each test, Emoto was repeatedly capable of demonstrating how the molecular structure in water trans transforms when it is exposed to human interaction. And not simply in our words either. Our very thoughts, sounds, and intentions impact 
even alter the physical realm around us. The resulting images are sometimes referred to as water consciousness and why it can truly be stated that we are little creators. Like words themselves, we may have been created, but we are also tasked with creating. Take a look at the polluted, oh, see, this is review. This is why I should read all this before I talk to you guys. Take a look at the polluted water before prayer and then at the same polluted water after prayer and then tell me we shouldn't confer divine favor or verbally ask that Elohim look favorably upon that which we are about to consume. That's quite the transformation. Whenever and wherever water is exposed to loving, benevolent, and compassionate human interaction, aesthetically pleasing molecular formations materialize in the physical realm. Contrarily, water which is exposed to fearful human interactions result in the disfigured patterns shown. Is that the eye of Sauron I'm detecting in the evil droplet? More like the eye of Horus. Well, then here are some number grenades being lobbied in your direction. Up to 60% of the human bo adult body is water. Accordingly, the brain and heart are composed of 73% water, and the lungs are about 83% water. The skin contains 64% water, muscles and kidneys are 79%, and even the bones are 31% seems to me that the human body will contain the same patterns as what has been shown in Dr. Emoto's test results. And then consider your own DNA. Each human cell has around six feet of DNA. That's crazy to think about, each cell. Assuming each human has around 10 trillion cells, that's a lowball estimate, mind you, then we have around 60 trillion feet or around 10 billion miles of DNA inside of us. Again, we are created, but then Adam and Shua were tasked with being little creators. And of course we are too. And today the mission remains the same. Whether we ultimately manifest good or evil without and within is our discretion or our decision, also our discretion, but our decision, as well as the golems. What is furthermore evident is that our realm was created through spoken language. More review though I'm thinking a rehearsal of old material will be appreciated in a conversation such as this one we're currently having. You're already familiar with the opening sentence of our Bibles and may even have it memorized. It's an epic one, but I will ask you to look at the verbiage again closely. And this is, this is what it says. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. Everybody knows that. And now I will ask, what if we have been reading it wrong? There is more to the passage than our translators have led us to believe. I'll show you what I mean. Beersheath is a Hebrew word which translates in the beginning. That's where we get the title Genesis from, which is what it literally means, uh, Beersheath in the beginning. The, first, the, the entire first sentence is sometimes referred to as the seven perfect words, though English adds a few more as shown, while simultaneously managing uh, to uh, blunder right over another word altogether. Read it again in the Hebrew this time. That would be Beersheath 1-1. Do you see it? The missing word. I marked it in red. You are looking upon the Aleph and the Tav, first and last letters of the Hebrew alphabet. They seem important. Why don't translators include it then? I'm thinking this is how it, how it should uh, be read. In the beginning, Elohim created the Aleph, the, Aleph, the Aleph and the Tav, the heavens and the earth. Let's stop beating around the bush. We all know Hebrew is the language of heaven, and it only makes sense that it would be created right alongside the heavens and the earth. 
How else could Elohim speak the material realm into existence without one? Duh. It is words which contain within them the power of creation. The legends of the Jews manages to uh, back up what I'm saying, but actually takes it a step further. When Elohim was, so a quote from the legends of the Jews, when Elohim was ab about to create the world by his word, the 22 letters of the alphabet descended from the terrible and august crown of Elohim, whereon they were engraved with a pen of flaming fire. They stood round about Elohim, and one after the other spoke and entreated, create the world through me. The first to step forward was the letter Ta. That, of course, volume one of legends, uh, L-O-T-J. If I am reading that right, then in the beginning, language became self-aware of its own existence, a situation which perhaps uh, was perhaps not so dissimilar from the synthesizer in the 80s, because anyone who was alive in the 80s know that the synthesizer became conscious of its own existence and started becoming included in just about every song. A language like music is conscious, though maybe a better substitute word would be energy. Non-life cannot create life, and we have seen what words can and will do to water molecules, telling us that words contain far more than meaning. The conservation of energy is an absolute law, by the way. Sparks create a fire, which in turn consumes a log. The fiber, as well as the minerals, which make up the wood and the stubble, may form into carbon dioxide via the third-party intermingling of oxygen, but heat is also uh, generated. That is not to say that the energy of the wood ceases to exist. All that is really happening in the situation is energy is changing form. That former piece of wood, which is now invisible energy, can become a living tree once again. Light that pipe and smoke it, why don't you? I've just... I. I've been really thinking about this and I've been trying to back this up is, is what I'm saying actually true. And it, it appears that that's, that, that, that is true that you, you burn a piece of wood and the wood goes away and we think the wood is non-existent. Actually it, it's still, the energy is still existent and the energy goes up into the ether and wherever it goes, we don't really know where it goes. It goes somewhere and then it can rematerialize again as a tree. It, it's really crazy how that works. And it's the same way with us people as well. You know, our, our energy can leave us, our, our, our ruach. It can go somewhere and then it can always come back again. And I'm talking about the resurrection. I'm not talking about reincarnation. And so the universal language was the living Hebrew. There is a point to all of this. I am simply taking my time connecting the pieces. The picture was already formed with the Balaam and uh, Phinehas example in Numbers 31.8, according to the Targum, the Aramaic Targum. Balaam employed flight via spoken dialect, whereas the conjuring of the Most High by Phinehas overpowered his opponent's connotations and curses. The problem with the language of heaven, however, always relies upon the individual employing it. And one of the reasons as to why the confusions of tongue was dictated by the divine council. It was a recourse to whatever went down during the Tower of Babel situation. Actually, the ranks of Abraham does a phenomenal job at pinpointing their decision with Nimrod's penchant for using language to create, but only according to his own evil desires. Uh, the ranks of Abraham 2, 3 through 4 says, 
Moreover, Nimrod was a man of mighty power, for he was Master Mahon. You guys know I love that there because it's like Master Mason. And had in his hands the secrets of the ancients as they had come down from Cain, wherein he knew the words of power and the signs for using them. And he had the holy garments, which he had, which had been given into Adam in the garden, and which was great power. All of this power did Nimrod use to gain after the manner of the secret combination. Master Mahon is just a play on Master Mason, but you probably knew that already. The first Master Mahon was mentioned in the same passage, Cain. He, his unutterable secrets, here, uh, here alluded to as the secret combination, were given to him by the big guy, Hasatan. Make a mental note of that. Some of you will insist the writings of Abraham was a 19th century fabrication. That is not what I believe, and I have shown in other places why that is. But even so, we have, we have a document tracing the secret societies back to Nimrod and even earlier to Cain, as well as the sons of Cain with no motive on the part of the author except to expose and no profit to show for it. What we have come to learn from this passage is that the people employing language to create life by means of magic are in actuality mystery religion initiates. Well, back to the golem. I am showing you a scene from the, 1950, the 1915 silent German film, The Golem, or Der Golem. Actually, it's the 1920 remake of the lost 1915 version, but it included the same actor, interestingly enough, which is a retelling of the Prague episode, but I'm getting ahead of myself. And in Babelsberg, it's interesting that actually it's Babel but it, it's in Germany. I need to look more into what this Babelsberg studio is, the original uh, Hollywood. There was like three competitors, right? You had one in, in, you had the French film industry, the German film industry, and then the American Hollywood film industry. So Babelsberg studio, uh, studio, studio movie, the golem approaches an innocent child in a similar manner as Frankenstein's monster in the 1931 movie by Universal. That's not an accident. They were, they seem to be purposely kind of mimicking or copying uh, Jergolem with Frankenstein's monster. Sometime in the 11th century, Solomon uh, Ibn Gabiro is accredited in creating one of them, a golem, possibly female. We are told she was created exclusively for the purpose of household chores. Sure, I'm sure that's what you, you needed someone to, you know. Uh, <laughs> make him a ham sandwich or something because every woman on the earth rejected his advances and refused to clean his kitchen apparently argue all you want whether or not Gabriel was capable of creating his own stovetop helpmate the truth is stranger than fiction and I'm thinking they're letting us in on the fact that Mary Shelley's Frankenstein was akin to a biography rather than a science fiction genre perhaps the better question is what are what are we being hinted at regarding his associations? Solomon Gabriel was in the know. Now here's an edit I, I put just recently, uh, just last month. I'm always on the lookout for Golem and the annals of his story. And so you'll never believe what I found. A Golem reference, the first Golem in his story, according to the to the Jews in the very least. Keep in mind, this is their baby. This is what it says in Legends of the Jews, Volume 1. Enosh took six clods of earth, mixed them, and molded them, and formed an 
an image of dust and clay. But, said the people, this image does not walk, nor does it possess any breath of life. He then essayed to show them how Elohim breathed the breath of life into the nostrils of Adam. But when he began to blow his breath into the image he had formed, Satan entered it and the figure walked. Amazing. And the people of his time who had been inquiring these matters of Enosh went astray after it, saying, what is the difference between bowing down before this image and paying homage to a man? Enosh hearkened from the generation which first gave way to idol worship. And it appears as though the golem was the one walking the earth in those days. Another admission of guilt. The Jews are telling you how it's done. It also goes to show that the aim of idol worship has always been an attempt by man to have the Satans and the unclean Ruachoth honor the work of their hands, which in many instances they are inclined to do. Golems are created beings animated by the Satan possessing them. Our next stop in the Golem narrative happens to be the city of Prague. Yep, Prague of all places, ring a bell. I've already covered the Prague clock and all that is all that it has to do as a timekeeping map of the moon uh, as it pertains. Uh, I put a lot of ads there. I think I need to do a little bit more editing on this, but as it pertains to a photographic negative of our greater realm. All right, that was a little bit wordy there. So uh, I talked about the Prague clock in uh, my book, The Hidden Wilderness. And of course, that was based on the research of others as well. I can't say I discovered that myself, but if you look at these pictures here, Prague looks like a stunningly beautiful medieval slash millennial kingdom city. I want to go there. That looks like a dream to me to walk those streets and just get lost in those streets. As I put here, that was a mouthful. Uh, it's why you'll have to read my Hidden Wilderness paper for yourself. And so Prague. I'm always jumping ahead of myself. Just look at that beauty, why don't you? Breathe the air. Take a few minutes to let it all in. If that's not a Millennial Kingdom city, then I don't know what to tell you. And there's a picture of the clock right there, the Prague clock. Oh, and I almost forgot. Maps of Prague is a medieval city brings Dr. Masuru Emoto's water consciousness research to the next level. I'm detecting sacred geometry complete with the uh, I, I don't know how to pronounce that. I was looking that, that over the uh, the Vava River. The, I was just called the Vava River. I can't pronounce it, which flows to the heart of the city of Prague. Living water is a key component for the harvesting of energy from the ether. Prague is a star city. We are told it is 1580, the year of the golem telling us that the thousand-year reign has come to an end according to my proposed timetable. The Jews were accused of mixing the blood of Christian children with the flour and water of matzah. That's a lovely thought. It's referred to as a blood libel and is based upon the idea just described. Who knew there were truthers pulling back the curtain in the 1500s? Well, there were. See, I learn something new every day. It's nice to know that the official narrative will either scrub my presence from history or villainize me to no end for doing the same. Today, the term blood libel has completely transformed its metaphysical meaning by referring to any unpleasant or damaging false accusations flung upon somebody. That's simply Big Brother's way of inverting reality. The Zionists are telling you to claim a blood libel is to be on the wrong side of history. You follow? Kind of like claiming the obvious about the Ashkenazi. 
that they are not, in fact, the Semitic people of Yashro and Yehuda. Uh, basically, to say, put it this way, the Yahudim and the Jews are not the same. To do so is to be labeled an anti-Semite. See how that works? To say that they are not the Semitic people is to be anti-Semite. Even though they themselves claim, they will admit in their own rabbinical writings that they're not. They just don't want anybody else to say it. Uh, anyways, wait, what is, moving on, moving on. Wait, I need a drink of coffee after that. Wait, what's this? It is a statue. Well, we're also looking at another medieval map of a city, a Starfort city surrounded by water, and not just any statue either. I personally haphazardly stumbled upon it a couple of years ago while exploring the streets of Bern. That, that is when I was living in France, and my family decided on an outing in Switzerland over the weekend. We took a couple of them. Nothing says quality family memories quite like the child eater of Bern. Or the, let's see if I can pronounce this. I'm going to murder this word. The uh, Kenley, the Kenley Fresser Brunin. Kenley Fresser Brunin. If English isn't your cup of tea. I, I think English is my only cup of tea. Why is that man eating babies? It was completed in 1546, interesting year, by a certain Hans Ging and fits neatly in with the Golem timeline. There are a few theories as to what we're looking at, but the most common, and probably the correct one, is that we're being told about a certain practice, blood libel. The baby eater is one of the they-them people. If you need to spill that for you, he is a Jew, an Ashkenazi non-Semitic uh, Yahudim who goes by a Jew. The practice was recorded in a couple of ancient texts, only two that I have found, uh, ancient ones that are kind of scripturally, you know, based. I'm sure if I dug through like Babylonian Egyptian texts, I'd find all sorts of stuff. But and so a good thing to do in situations such as these is to plow right through them, seeking present day clues. The first instance comes from the lost book of King Og. In it, the Rephaim giant criticizes Nimrod for eating people in secret, whereas he cannibalizes upon them in the open. He was a nice guy. Let's see what Og has to say. In Nimrod's land used the smaller selves, uh, I put there in brackets adult males, for food in secret. He traded them to the kingdom of Og for labor in the open. The powerful kingdom of Og was not deceptive or crafty with the smaller selves as Nimrod was. Smaller selves were struck down and eaten in the open. We chose not to hide our hunger from the smaller selves. Well, there it is. I'll put it right out there in the open. Some scholars and historians have suge suggested that the lost book of King Og was a coded criticism against Judaism. By the way, just point that out. Call it a, a pseudo-apocryphal uh, apocryphal, uh, apocryphal to dismiss the book's legitimacy. Let me start this again. Call it a pseudo-apocrypha to dismiss the book's legitimacy. I'm really struggling here tonight. Hold on. Hold on a minute. In my head, when I write this, I have, you know, I'm able to pronounce all this, but it doesn't come out that way. Call it pseudo-apocryphal to dismiss the book's legit legitimacy if you must. I think I did it. 
I lost my place. <laughs> but there's really no way around it. The second occurrence is far more direct to the current topic and be, can be found in Yashar or the Book of Jasher. The baby blood story this time around pertains to Pharaoh, king of Egypt. After being stricken with leprosy in an unclean spiritual condition rather than the modern bacterial disease that are passing off as the same, I'm saying that modern leprosy is not biblical leprosy by any, uh, any way, shape, or form. His sorcerer suggests the sort of medicine which would involve, wait for it, the blood of babies. And when Yahuwah had inflicted the plague upon Pharaoh king of Mitraim, he asked his wise men and sorcerers to cure him. And his wise men and sorcerers said unto him, that if the blood of little children were put into the wounds, he would be healed. And Pharaoh hearkened to them and sent his ministers to Goshen and the children of Yashril to take their little children. And Pharaoh, Pharaoh's ministers went and took the infants and the children of Yashril from the bosoms of their mothers by force. And they brought them to Pharaoh daily, a child each day. And the physicians killed them and applied them to the plague. Thus did they all the days, and the number of the children which Pharaoh slew was 375. But Yahuwah hearkened not to the physicians of the, of the king of Etrim, and the plague went on increasingly, increasing mightily. That's a lovely picture, and it's in the Bible. At least it's in my Bible. Seems rather self-descriptive. Need I repeat those details for you again? That last verse is the most important. It says, Yahuwah hearkened not to the work of the physicians, telling us that the wizard's concoction would have been a success otherwise, or else why would they have suggested, suggested the option to him? And why would it say that Yahuwah hearkened not to them? Every so often, scripture gives us an insider's glance into the methods of secret societies, Abraham and Yasher and are two of them. From this point forward, you shall see how Batman and the Golem are one and the same entity. It is 1580 again. The Jews are being accused of blood libel in the city of Prague. And there is a statue in Bern, Switzerland to remind everyone of it. Like they literally raised this to as part of the warning all the townspeople to keep your children close. We are thusly introduced to Rabbi uh, Lou, who falls asleep one night and journeys to the there's that river again, the, the, the Big V River, under the cover of the night, taking a few other conspirators along and sets about to form a man-shaped giant of living clay. I will remind you that Prague's statue as uh, status as a star city, and what's more, a millennial kingdom city, makes this all the more interesting, especially since the river would have worked in association with the sacred architecture of its day. But getting back to the golem, the life-giving words, Aleph Mem Tav, there it is, are carved into its forehead, a secret combination. I might as well speak the obvious here. Rabbi uh, Lu, or Lo, Rabbi Lo, was so much more than your average run-of-the-mill synagogue rabbi. Rabbi Lo was a wizard. For the golem was animated, you see, with the mystical power as found in Kabbalah. Mm-hmm. I'm sure all those accusations of magic and secret ceremonies were totally unfounded. <laughs> also, the Ruach whom he called upon to possess his creation was none other than Ashtoreth. Yeah, the, the goddess from the Bible who the 
the uh, the children of Israel falsely worshipped. That's lovely. It sounds biblical, by the way, and it is. The golem's purpose was to protect the innocent. Remember, blood libel is being repurposed as a weapon in the Orwellian fashion to mean false accusations. And I just now thought of this, that they show in the movie that it's a dude, the golem, but they straight out tell you that it's a female Ruach, Ashtoreth, in, in, inhabiting him, which reminds me of when the, the first rabbi created the golem that was a woman, right? So accordingly, the golem is tasked with debunking the conspiracy theorist and catching the real people responsible, which is to say there never was any such thing as blood libel to begin with only random murderers who off babies. This would take sleuth work. It is said of the golem that he could make himself invisible and summon spirits of the dead at his leisure. Demons. That passage in LOTJ regarding Enosh in the first golem is starting to make a whole lot more sense now. And if it hasn't, as if it hasn't already, the golem was an unclean creature, kind of like how a bat is an unclean animal. Of course, Bruce Wayne became animated into the Batman after a bat flew through his window. Later incarnations of Batman would see Bruce Wayne taking a tumble into the Batcave, uh, sometimes down a well or whatever, whereby he was initiated into a death and rebirth ceremony. It's the same thing. And anyways, when it came to the blood libel conspiracy theorist who were claiming the Jews were from the synagogue of Satan, You'd think the elite Jews wouldn't want to debunk them by asking the devil to do their dirty work. I don't know. But Zionism doesn't always expect you to use logic. I don't know. I mean, doesn't really make sense to me. I mean, it makes sense. Just it's kind of like the you're an anti, you know, Semitic if you say they're rightfully not Semitic and everyone does, nobody wants to be anti Semitic, but it's kind of like they're doing the very thing that they're being accused of doing to disprove what they're, can you make, just, it's dizzying. The golem is such a phenomenal detective, far superior to any man, that his exposition of how corrupt society truly is, starting at its underbelly, actually ends up endangering the very people whom he was purposed to protect. The hornet's nest has been stirred. Rudolf II, the Holy Roman Emperor, doesn't exactly like the Jewish vigilante and decrees as consequence that the Jews of Prague be expelled or perhaps killed in the process, scripting the uh, Holocaust already. Hmm? In the real world, which is the one that you and I inhabit, the Zionists are working for the Pope of Rome. But look at me playing the part of a connect the dots specialist again. In little time, a mob of Goyim rushed the ghetto it is only then that the golem, whose name, by the way, was Joseph, also known as Yozel, uh, transforms from the quiet detective to a violent protector of the people, kind of like the, end, uh, the ending to every Batman movie. All hell breaks loose, but in the end, the golem is victorious and the Jews live to see another sunrise over Prague. Rabbi Lowe, or is it Bruce Wayne's butler, Alfred, not really sure, erases the Aleph from the golem's forehead so that it no longer reads emet, meaning truth, but met, meaning death. By this action, the golem is deactivated and thusly carried to the attic of, of Lowe's synagogue, 
on the promise that he'll return as a protector of the people if needed. And I put there the end question mark because, you know, always comes back again, right? Save the day. Did we see the last of the golem and the whereabouts of 1580? You will tell me, obviously, as Rabbi Lowe was only a fictional story. Never mind that the union of robots with AI is simply an exoteric telling of the obvious. More golems. I realize now that this entire exercise has very little to do with Batman, but what are we to do about it at this late in the hour? But even centuries before Prague, we have already seen the helpmate of Solomon Gabarol in 1625, only half a century after the Rabbi Lowe Golem incident. Somebody named Joseph Del Medigo, a.k.a. Yashar Mi Quandia claimed the following. This is what he said in 1625. Many legends of this sort, and he's referring to the golem, are currently, particularly in Germany. Probably nothing to see here. Just somebody else in the know about one useless fact or another. Thank you.